Hello, you're listening to the Mag Culture podcast recorded right here in the Mag Culture shop, Clerkenwell, London. I'm Jeremy Leslie. And I'm Liv Siddall. Hello and welcome to the Mag Culture podcast. Hi Jeremy, how's it going? Very well, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. We've got a lot to cram into this episode, so I think we should probably just get just on with dive it. Just <laughs> dive in. Dive into the magazine world. The magazines. I think we're probably going to start with the magazine that everyone's talking about. In Every, Everyone's buying, we can't get enough copies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What could it be? What could it be? It's the Face magazine. Which the return just, of the face. Yeah, just relaunched. And yeah, it's very difficult to find copies. Um... People who have seen it have got positive and negative things to say about it. I suppose that was going to be the reaction no matter what it was. Well, there was so much anticipation, including from us. We kept talking about it. It was coming, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah. And it came. And as I say, we've, we've sold lots and lots of copies. But there's been, almost been like, and everything's gone quiet. No one's already mentioned what they think about it, which I'm not sure is a good sign. Yeah, there's quite, um, there's quite a good article on the BBC that we just had a mm-hmm. read of about it and about their kind of demographic and where it fits in terms of on the shelf alongside ID and Days and another and that kind of thing, which is kind of what we've discussed mm-hmm. in the past, like where is it going to fit? And it's so interesting to to see it in the flesh. Like it's it's in print and it's been this kind of long campaign of like, it's coming back, it's coming back. And here it is. And fascinating. Yeah, I mean, what not, do we think? not really what I expected. Mm-hmm. But then which is kind a good of thing. exactly what I expected. Mm-hmm. This is why it's very difficult to... Um, try and critique something like this because like many things you've kind of got what you want it to be which is probably how it used to be and then you want it to be really modern which is probably going to appeal to a much younger demographic mm-hmm. than you and I who may be yeah. sort of like 19, 20 year olds whatever so you're kind of you want to be impressed and showing something new but at the same time you want it to be how you remember it so it's always going to be difficult but I have I mean I don't really know where to begin. <laughs> I honestly don't. <laughs> I do. This has been one of the hardest I, things to review ever. It's just, it, there's too much to say. Well, as you say, it's this. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm completely aware it's not aimed at me. But what I can say for sure is that it lacks the sort of basic kind of magazine craft that isn't, you need to have, make a magazine. There's this sort of strange lack of stand first and strange. It sort of feels like a work in progress that hasn't quite been finished off to me. What do you th- what do you mean? So lack of stand first is one thing. What else do you think is a kind of like the basic magazine craft? Well, the sort of structure to? and the flat plan and the sort of way that it flows through, I, I find it quite confusing to look at and quite just quite sort of s- almost over over simple. It lacks a character. We, you know, we 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 sit in this office and, and the shop surrounded by magazines, all of which boast huge personality and huge character, and it just just feels a bit flat to me. The way I felt when I was reading it was like I was on some kind of like big group Hindu with loads of great people <laughs> on the Hindu, but the maid of honour hadn't quite organised it very well. <laughs> so there were moments of like, maybe this is fun. And the moments of being like, I literally don't know where I am. And, and also and, I don't know where I'm going next. And then you get next. the back page and there's an interview with Liam Gallagher and, and, you, <laughs> yeah. and you're just so confused. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you're, you're, you're saying what I said in a much more eloquent manner. Well, I went in there just so excited. Like, I can't mm-hmm. wait to read this magazine. I can't wait to see what it's like because I love the face and I love mm-hmm. magazines. But I just, yeah, I, just, I, I feel like either am I just like too old in my grand age of 30 to understand... I feel like I was finding myself being like all fuddy-duddy by finding it annoying that they've got like these lovely Mirko Borsch typefaces like behind the the article so you can't really read it sometimes and you're a bit like, oh, that's kind of annoying. Or like sometimes I didn't I didn't realise like one of my friends had written one of the articles that I really wanted to read because there's no kind of who's who's written it and who's taking the photos is so small and there's no stand for. So I, that, I, I actually the, the, don't often don't know when one article ends and the other begins. And then sometimes the adverts look so much like editorial that you think you're still in the article when actually it's adverts and you're like, but I thought I was, oh no. And then okay. you're just like, That's, I'm an old <laughs> lost person. I don't know what to do. I honestly, I yeah, I think it's probably best to say, to end on saying like this is a very fascinating comeback and I think what's good about it is that I am looking forward to having like many in-depth conversations about this magazine and I'd like to and I and I really really want it to succeed and I can't wait for that to happen but I think some of the other magazines we're going to talk about today do things that I wish the face was doing and we'll come back to that well I think minute. we've got some great examples of magazines but as, as as you said in the beginning we've got a lot to get through but let's let's jump immediately 
to one that you're just flicking through, Galdem. Right, so Galdem do something that I was hoping the face would because when I saw the face uh, had announced all their contributors and it's sort of like this kind of like team of like hundreds of young writers and creative directors and photographers who are going to be part of the team this kind of like massive expansive team I was really excited about this kind of community thing yeah this is something that Galdem do just so easily and so quickly and naturally so as soon as you open up the new issue of Galdem the fourth issue you're greeted with a feature which is all of the all of the staff team getting together and they're talking about how there's too much content in the world today. So here's some stuff that is not new or modern or cool, but stuff that's really enjoyable. And they all just kind of write about stuff you could watch or read or enjoy or listen to. And it's written in their tone of voice personally. And you're you're in this magazine and suddenly you feel like you're being led on a journey by a bunch of really cool mm-hmm girls who are best mates which is a much better experience than a magazine that's made up of people who may never have even met each other before and that's what I think Galdem is so good at and that's why I'd, I'd, I mean the new issue is just is so great and it continues to be they set that tone so well of being led on a journey by you know a journey of friendship and exploration which so is what it. I look for in a magazine but it's just it's just it's just full of um, great articles and the theme is unrest and they cover that without being too po-faced at the same mm-hmm. time. It's, it's fun, it's engaging, it's interesting, it's great, it's really well commissioned. And they know exactly who they're addressing as well. They, they, yeah. You talk about the community of the makers, people making it, the, the, the reader is part of that community as well. Yeah. Include, very inclusive. Very inclusive, and they know exactly who they're speaking to, which I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's it's such a difficult thing for a magazine to even do, but when it is done... It just you just it sort of mm-hmm. sings off the pages, really. So yeah, that's that's an incredible new issue, and definitely one to pick up. Another one which I'm very excited by, which just arrived literally as we were setting up to to record this episode, was the tenth issue of Buffalo Zine, which mm. always promises a lot and, and without question always delivers. And this new one does it again. And they produced an issue uh, which is unfinished. The pages aren't trimmed, and there are handwritten corrections throughout it. I've only had a very quick flick through it, uh, but I'm already engaged and wanting to find out more but I think what everything that that they've done in terms of pretending this this new issue is unfinished demonstrates the kind of instinctive understanding they have of the craft of magazine making because you can see their edit marks on the page you can see their desire to improve what they're doing it's all self-evident in the page and it's also great great fun it's an enjoyment of celebration of making magazines Um, and that fun aspect seems to be something that I would say was missing from the face as well. <laughs> We're is... just going to keep bringing it back to the <laughs> face. Not, no, <laughs> no, it's fine. I but, think... You know, um, but, 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 but a lot a lot is expected of the face. They, 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 know. You know, they do have a high barrier to be compared, uh, a high marker to be compared to. So I, I think we have to do that. It, these are the magazines they have to... But something about Buffalo Zine seems much more modern because Buffalo Zine is, is, is doing something so clever and so original each time that blows you away every single time. Mm-hmm. It's something completely new. They, they, how, how often is it? Is it like biannual? Uh, I think I think it's biannual. Um, Which is yeah. a lot of work to, yeah. to create an entirely new publication every time and also completely nail it and uh, make it so And the desirable. volume of material they produce. I mean, I mean yeah. you know, it is in the end a fashion magazine, so, you know, it's, it's sending photographers out to shoots and, 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 and compiling it all. But the structure that they build around those shoots to, to create, as you say, a whole new publication each time is amazing. Yeah, and everyone looks um, forward to it so much because it's something yeah. just that you wouldn't expect. Yes. Um, yes. And I can't wait. To, I haven't actually looked at that yet because it's so new, but... I I cannot wait to... Mm-hmm. At the other end of the scale, there's a little tiny magazine called Lyrics as Poetry, which um, takes song lyrics and prints them as if they were poems uh, and bringing out the poetic qualities of the songs designed to be heard, not read. And it's a lovely, beautiful, little serene publication that's doing something pure and interesting. We met Eric and Sarah, the two uh, people behind the magazine, during our pop-up, the London Art Book Fair, and they were one of our guests in the Mag Culture Quarter. I asked Eric to tell us about the project. When my wife Sarah Noel and I created Lyrics as Poetry, the idea was to create a gallery-like experience for music and lyrics and to present singer-songwriters' contributions on the page as poetry. So each volume consists of about 35 songwriters, notes from those songwriters on their lyrics, along with 20 music journalists and writers or industry Uh, professionals who spotlight lyrics that have resonated with them personally. So it's a mix between songwriters reflecting on their own lyrics and uh, music journalists spotlighting perhaps more popular songs. And each volume is perfect bound, about 88 to 100 pages, and we're self-distributed, so we are in about 30 bookstores across the U.S., 
and, uh, and also selling online. Lyrics' poetry is self-distributed, so what we're looking to do is build the footprint that we're already in in bookstores. Um, we have great partners right now. One of our favorite bookstores is uh, Skylight in LA and McNally Jackson in New York, and we're looking to build uh, a footprint in other cities. As far as uh, the future, what we're looking to do, we had a great event where songwriters played their contributions um, in front of uh, an audience and writers read their entries. Uh, so that was a, a fun event that we're looking to, to build off of. So moving on from lyrics as poetry, we're going to casually segue into a very weird and quite amazing story that I came across recently. So get ready to hear the fascinating story of one man's quest to track down a magazine that may or may not have ever existed. And this is actually quite a complicated story, so bear with me. But I'm going to give it a go. So there is a song by the band called The Fall called Dr. Buck's Letter. I don't know if you know it. If you don't have listened to it, it's great. At the end of the song, the singer Marquis Smith sings about reading an interview with Pete Tong in a magazine. And in the song, he ends up reading out the interview and laughing because the quotes from Pete Tong are pretty ridiculous, as you can imagine. And no one really ever knew if Marquis Smith just made this up or if it was a real magazine feature. Probably no one really thought about it or cared. But cut to the present day, 20 years after the song was recorded, and I was on Twitter and I saw a tweet from this man called Dan who had managed to locate the actual magazine that Mark E. Smith referenced in the song. So I got in touch with Dan, who is uh, a trained librarian and a huge fan of The Fall, and I asked him to tell us about his quest to find this now no longer mythical magazine. Um, so here he is telling us his story, and get ready because it is good. I'm a regular on The Fall online forum and a frequent contributor to the annotated Fall website. Online, I use the name Danny No. Marky Smith was described by Marcia Schofield, a former fall keyboardist, as a lyrical magpie. And it is true, his lyrics are often built out of borrowed or adapted material, and what I do is try and track down his sources. Lyrical archaeology, you could call it, if you were taking it seriously. The song Dr. Book's Letter is nearly 20 years old now, first performed in May 2000 and released on the Unutterable album that autumn. It's one of my favourite fall songs, I think it's also quite popular more widely too, beyond the hardcore of fans. But the last part of the lyric is about Mark cheering himself up by turning on the radio and reading a magazine interview, apparently with Pete Tong, the DJ. And for nearly 20 years, full fans have wondered where that interview came from, if it was even real. And in principle, that question is answerable, at any rate answerable by someone with an unhealthy obsession with full trivia and a detective instinct. So it's been a 20-year search. That sounds more extreme than it is. You know, I've been doing other things too. It's something I've come back to every so often. But it did become a bit of a holy grail of fall trivia. When the song was first performed in London in May 2000, Marky Smith recited, or read, what we now know was almost the entire interview. And that was more or less the full lyric. It was only later that it was coupled with the lyric about losing his temper with a friend. And on the album, we only get a short extract from the interview, the first couple of questions, which is interesting if you're analysing Marky Smith's writing processes. Anyway, there were some clues from the lyrics to those first performances, because in the interview, Tong talks about working on the soundtrack to the film The Beach, which came out in February 2000. So I thought that meant the interview was probably published in the run-up to the release of that film, so towards the end of 1999 or the beginning of 2000. Secondly, it was clearly one of those template interviews that help editors fill space. You run the same questions by a different person every issue. Cheap and easy. You don't even have to meet the interviewee. You can just fax or email over the questions. And that meant that finding the interview might be a bit easier than if it was an original standalone interview, because if you found those same questions somewhere, then you'd know you were looking at the right publication. Also, a lot of people have assumed that the interview was from a music magazine, which I never agreed with. I never thought that the subject matter was right for that kind of publication. And over the years, I'd looked at samples of copies of most of the music magazines on the market at the time, and none of them had run a series of interviews with those questions or with similar questions. I thought that the questions Tong was being asked seemed to vaguely revolve around travel, lifestyle. At any rate, that was my gut feeling. 
But like an archaeologist, you've got to figure out where you're going to start digging. You might not be entirely right. I don't think I necessarily was. It doesn't really matter. But making an informed guess is better than a wild stab in the dark. More time passed. Every so often I'd come back to the question, tick some magazines off, think about what else to try. But then earlier this year, I took my full trivia detective work to another level by getting myself a British Library card, which is something I should have done years ago. And I started thinking much more seriously about the possibility of tracking down the interview and how that might be done. The British Library get a copy of every UK publication, so theoretically I could have gone through a checklist of every magazine published in the UK during the relevant time period. I did consider that, but that seemed time-consuming, even excluding implausible candidates like Knitting Monthly or whatever. Uh, it would miss anything not published in the UK. In the end, the breakthrough was thinking again about that first performance of the song in May 2000. And I thought, maybe he just picked up the magazine that day. What if he stepped off the train from Manchester, picked up that magazine and read that interview, took it to the gig and read it out? It's possible he would do that. So I remember thinking, maybe there was a magazine he read on the train down to London. I mean, I don't know how he travelled. That doesn't matter. It's about a starting point. So... From Manchester to London, that's the line operated by Virgin Trains. What if they had one of those onboard magazines? And so I had a look, and they did. And it was called Hotline. And because the British Library get a copy of everything published in the UK, they had copies. So on the 1st of August, I visited the British Library up at Boston Spa, which if you don't know it, is about two miles from Weatherby. It's about an hour journey from where I live. I was very confident. I thought Marky Smith would probably have used a very recent issue of the magazine, and so I ordered issue nine, Winter 99-2000. You have to order stuff in advance because they keep most of the stock in store. You can't just rock up and browse. It's a quarterly publication, so I thought for a May performance, and because of the clues in the interview, the next issue was probably too late, and I wasn't sure exactly when they were published. But I was too confident. When I got there, looked at the magazine, the Tong interview wasn't in that issue. But what I did find showed I was definitely on the right track. It contained an interview with Pauline McLean, who played Mrs. Doyle in Father Ted. And that interview began with, Checklist, I never leave home without. <laughs> Which in Pauline's case was lip moisturiser, a sense of humour and a change of underwear. So that was frustrating, so near and yet so far. But I knew I was on the right track. I didn't get back to the British Library until the 27th of August, nearly a month later. And this time I ordered issue 10, uh, the spring 2000 issue, and issue 8, the autumn 99 issue. And I got there and I sat at my desk in the British Library reading room, having collected my pile of material, uh, and opened up issue 10, and Pete Tong wasn't there. And I turned to issue 8 and opened that up, and I just felt this completely overwhelming sense of glee. There it was on the last page of the magazine, the interview with Pete Tong. I felt like jumping on the desk and pounding my chest and doing a lap of honour and kissing everyone in the room, but I couldn't because I was in the British Library reading room, and it's really not the done thing. So I posted Discovery to the Annotated Fall and the Fall Forum, and then I thought it deserved a slightly bigger audience, it being quite a popular song. I'm not much of a Twitter user, but I posted it to Twitter, and it really took off in a surprising way. I think it's got about 200 likes by now, which in the scheme of things is tiny. But for me, it's a vindication of wasting time on pointless trivia. I don't generally get to create that kind of delight for so many people in a typical day. The interview itself is so weirdly banal. You've got Pete Tong claiming to carry credit cards he can't use, citing books he's never read in his top five, and putting Climb Everest onto his to-do list, even though he doesn't climb and doesn't have time. I mean, he says, I'm serious, I've got a bug about it. No, you're not. No, you don't. Completely ludicrous. Anyway... Hopefully, I provided some material that might be of use to future music critics, shed some light on Marky Smith's working methods, and I guess I've also proved the value of the British Library and the value of good old-fashioned library research skills. Thank you so much, Dan, for telling us your story. I just warms my heart to think of all the fans of anything out there who spend their time doing things like that and pleasing people like me who <laughs> I mean, it's just the classic example of doing a lot for little to no gain, but we should celebrate that. <laughs> I love the idea that people, there's a, there's a whole community of, of Fall fans that have been trying to dig out this for so long. Yeah, and he's done it. I love yeah. it. I love this kind of thing so much. And 
And the bizarre further <laughs> twist in this ridiculous story is that Jeremy worked on the magazine that he found. He worked on the Virgin Trains magazine. Jeremy, if, if only he'd come to me in the first place and asked. <laughs> How on earth did you find yourself in the year 2000 working on the Virgin Trains magazine? And do you remember making this feature? I was creative director at John Brown Publishing, who published the magazine. So I was responsible for the magazine, but I wasn't hands-on on it. You weren't commissioning um, Pete Tong to tell everyone no, about No, I his... wasn't. But, but I do remember that. I, I remember that that uh, idea of a feature and the fact that it existed, but I don't remember the, the Pete Tong one. But Hotline, was, as as Dan was saying, is, uh, it was published for Virgin Trains. And when you went on the train, you like on an airline, you got a free magazine at that stage. Um, anyone who'd like to listen to the track in which Marky Smith rips the piss out of Pete Tong for being a knob. The song is called Dr. Buck's Letter and it's by The Fool. Join us after the break to hear about the demise of Marie Claire and the 10th birthday of The Gentleman. So welcome back. Uh, and as The Face magazine returns, another old magazine dies. So it's... Um, RIP, the British edition of Marie Claire, which was um, which announced last week they were going to cease publishing in print and just be an online project. Much huffing and puffing about that in uh, online and various sort of end of the era, blah, blah, blah. I thought it'd be interesting to speak to one of the editors of the magazine to see what she thought about that news. I spoke to Mari O'Riordan, who edited the monthly magazine from 2000 to 2008, and asked her how she felt about its demise. On one level, I wasn't that surprised because I, you know, I'm still in touch with quite a lot of people who work there. I know the editor very well, but obviously I wouldn't have pressed her too much on the issue because that's a little bit fresher on yeah, when yeah. you're the editor but I'm you know I've been following newsstand trends and I've been looking at the magazine itself and I've just seen quite a lot of the I don't know USPs I suppose being diluted and quite a lot of the value from a reader point of view um, disappearing over the mm-hmm, years mm-hmm. so deep down I wasn't surprised but it was such a big brand I thought it would survive well, let's look at, I mean, you mentioned uh, the USPs, and for those that maybe don't remember when it was first around, and you know, what, what was so special and unique about the magazine? Well, it launched in 1988. I had probably been in the UK only a couple of years, because I'd arrived from Dublin. Um, I was working in a trade magazine at the time, and I just always remembered, first of all, it was, it was enormous, which seems uh-huh. quite funny nowadays because there has been a trend in the last few years for magazines to get smaller because it, anyway, it was larger than the other ones it was it was ever so slightly larger mm. but significantly mm-hmm. and it was slightly wider so and it had a very distinct cover style it was launched by an amazing woman called glenda bailey who i'm sure you know and i think from the moment i started reading it i thought this woman is a bit of a genius and um, she had apparently always loved french Mary claire and she had persuaded her bosses in her company, which at the time was known as IPC. Apparently she was dancing at a party, at a Christmas party uh-huh. one evening with one of the kind of management, one of the suits. And apparently during that dance, she persuaded him to go and meet the French and talk <laughs> about doing a joint venture and launching Marie Claire in uh, the UK. Anyway, the thing about Marie Claire, you had Vogue at the time and you had Elle and you had Cosmo. So Vogue and Elle owned fashion. Cosmo owned sex and sex advice and, you know, I think if you were somebody like me, I liked fashion and I wanted fashion advice, but I didn't feel the world of Vogue was my world. Um, I definitely felt I'd outgrown Cosmo from a sort of, you know, sex advice point of view. That wasn't really what I was interested in reading about. So Mary Claire came along and it offered me this unbelievably unique package, mainly of very intelligent features, but then it was wrapped up with incredible fashion that was designer, but also had a brilliant thing called uh, Marie Claire 101 Ideas. And that was all high street fashion, but it was very much based on designer trends. And then it had great beauty that had quite a lot of science in it. So it had everything. And it was like, I don't know, I guess from the couple of years that I started reading it before I became interested in working in women's magazines, I felt it was a badge of honor to have Marie Claire on, mm-hmm. the, on, the, on the tube because I felt it separated you from other women somehow, but at the same time you were part of a big community of like-minded women. So it did everything that a good magazine should do. It was definitely a downward spiral that was driven by the digital revolution, the fact that suddenly everybody started consuming their media for free, and the way Mary Claire 
perhaps responded to it, however, must play some role in its demise. Because I th my view is that the magazines that survive are the ones that are really proud of their USPs and proud of their DNA, and they fight it really furiously. Mm -hmm. And I think you would say that about any successful brand. You know, I don't know, you talk about, I don't know, the Louis Vuittons or any, any uh, you know, designer brand on Bond Street. They fought furiously to hold on to their price points during recessions. Mm -hmm. Any successful brand does do that. Mm -hmm. But I think, and I even felt this pressure while I was there, you were started to be encouraged to maybe soften the edges a little bit on the hard-hitting global mm -hmm. stories that we were doing. Then you were suddenly put under pressure to reduce the size of your team. And one of the reasons Marie Claire was successful was because we had a big team and we had experts in every team. We had amazing features writers, amazing fashion people, all of which could execute this formula created by Glenda. But that started to get eroded. So I think there is some responsibility on the publishing side because you can't really expect your readers to hand over the money every month for something that is no longer unique. Mm -hmm. And they become kind of generic rather than... Well, of course. And then... Did other magazines sort of start to copy it in its time? I mean, was it eaten by other magazines as well as the internet and other elements? Or Yes. No, I think that's a really good question. Um, yes, I think the Clever magazines. So we had two um, interesting launches during, I can't remember if it was during my time or after my time, but first of all, Stylist came along. Mm -hmm. The free, Obviously, free magazine. Yeah, it shook up the market as a free magazine. So first of all, that's really hard, mm -hmm. competing with a, a magazine that's actually very high quality but is free. But it started doing quite strong feminist point of view, which is which is really good and was really relevant for the time. And it would cover some areas that Marie Claire mm -hmm. would have owned before. But they would do it very briefly because it was a weekly and probably very cheaply, but still very well. Mm -hmm. So that was a bit of competition or a major competition. The other competition was Grazia. And I remember when they launched, because obviously everybody in media knows everybody, their sort of mantra was, we're going to be... Uh, the weekly Marie Claire. Mm -hmm. So they also wanted to mix this fashion and beauty alongside more feminist uh, reportage kind of reporting. And they did do that for a while, but they don't seem to do that. But they've, dr they've fallen yeah. back on that Funnily as well, Funnily enough, they? they seem to have not yeah. been as proud of their own DNA mm -hmm. either. So mm -hmm. you see it happening across the market. But we're, we're sat here at Mag Culture and there are a whole bunch of women's magazines that are on, produced on a far smaller scale, and, but maybe biannual or quarterly. But they are they are looking to grow what they're doing. I'm thinking of the gentlewoman, Riposte, uh, things like Galdem. How do you see them in relation to um, well, well, the failure think, of the mainstream? I think if I was arriving here as my younger self now, today, the magazine I would be drawn to would be Penny Martin's Gentlewoman because I think it shares quite a lot of the values mm -hmm. um, that I was drawn to to the original Marie Claire. So it's, it's, it's serious, it's beautiful. It's intelligent, and again, it feels as though you belong to a community of like-minded women. But I guess they are, their business model must be completely different yeah. to the sort of Mary Claire's, as you say, so th th their business model is probably more robust in these straightened times. I've always believed you have to be very proud of your values, and of course you have to tighten your belts during tough times, but I don't think you should try and copy what mm -hmm. appears to be the success at that moment. But if you're really focused and proud of whatever your unique selling point is, you have to have one of those, or several if you can, and you've just got to be really proud about them and, and protect them. Well, thank you very much, Mari, for coming in and talking about that. USBs indeed, and uh, I mean, you would think that one of, one of the, uh, the most basic issues around any magazine is its identity and the way it presents its logo, etc. And as part of the research for, for, for this uh, episode of the podcast, I went to the local um, supermarket and picked up a copy. Well, I struggled to pick up a copy of the of, of this, what will be the final issue of Marie Claire. And then I, I realised that the reason it was so difficult to find was because it, it had one of those promotions in it where there was some free, a free piece of, uh, a free cosmetics, is it? A sanctuary... Anyway, yeah. Uh, it, it, it has a bagged <laughs> gift in it, and the bag that you know seals up the magazine. But unfortunately, where the logo is at the top of the front cover is completely obliterated by the big word saying "free sanctuary spa body butter," which is great <laughs> if you want after some body butter. But if you want a copy of Marie Claire, you weren't going to find it in the newsagent. So uh, you know, I just, I mean, if that doesn't sum up the stupidity of of the commercial end of the market, I don't know what does. There's some really good stuff in here, actually. Interview with Sam Taylor Johnson. 
some good fashiony bits. It's it's kind of like in it's a it's a it's, it's a bit like Elle magazine, isn't it? It's a bit like a lot of things, but you know. Well, I think as Murray, Murray says, it, 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 they have all rather congealed into being the same thing, and just yeah. you know, and it is. You could endlessly list. It's a bit like this, a bit like that. There's a bit of this, a bit of that. Ellen von Unworth shooting Rita Ora. It's mm. very good. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, they, very they've sad got though. heavyweight stuff in it, but yeah, but it's a shadow of its former self. That is the October 2019 issue, the final one. Also um, announced last week, on the other side of the Atlantic, Washington Post's weekly supplement Express announced they were ceasing uh, to, to be printed. They printed a cover. They were very clear about where, where the problem lay. They, they printed a bold black cover that stated in big white lettering, hope you enjoy your stinking phones. Um, Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't think they're beating about the bush. They know what the problem is. Which is weird because I think I always am surprised that a supplement can fail because that's probably, I don't know, I, it's like a weekly lovely thing that comes with the newspaper like people mm -hmm. i would say buy the garden yeah. weekend for those bits because it's like a joy to spend your yeah. saturday reading them and for a supplement to go is it'd really be, sad it'll be the advertising yeah it's just you know no one no one's advertising it so they can't afford to do it the newspaper supplement was originally conceived to carry advertising yeah you know that was that was its raison d'etre and the, the color pages around it were a nice extra to the black and white newspaper but um oh, well, it's luckily the we still have some of those so we heard Mari mention the gentleman there, and since they're celebrating their 10th birthday and we've got a big window display uh, here in the shop, um, Editor-in-Chief Penny Martin popped in for a word. Well, welcome, Penny. Lovely to have you here. Thank you. And a great occasion to be celebrating 10 years and 20 issues. Yeah, who'd have thought? Mm -hmm. Well, who would have thought? I mean, what, did you think that? I mean, did, when you died, it was your first magazine you'd ever been responsible for. Well, so. exactly. So the first few issues, I was just terrified to get them out. Um, and maybe around the 2014, which must have been the 10th issue, we started thinking about mm -hmm. landmarks. But no, 20 seemed really far off at that point. And I think that was around the time Fantastic Man were having their anniversary. So I had a sort of uncomfortable relationship, I think, with the threat of an anniversary. I remember speaking to Hermes and them saying, oh, we don't do anniversaries, which right. I suppose is the luxury yeah. of having a kind of 100 and however many year house. Uh, that's, uh, but feels at the moment 10 years is something to celebrate. And you celebrate it in the issue with the special index selection, <laughs> which we picked up on the journal. It's the kind of thing, one of those sort of things, not just about gentle woman, but also about fantastic man that you love doing is these kind of uh, in-depth, apparently inconsequential facts that build up to a kind of a unique picture of, of, of a, either a person or a subject, but in this case, your own magazine. Yeah, well, I suppose it's an escalation of the reference sections that we've done in the past, but we don't do them every time. But I think also one as evolved as this, probably the only one that's been as kind of layered as this is in issue three, Adele. There's a sort of magazine inside a magazine. But I think it's something that actually Veronica Ditting, our creative director, did in her graduate project, whether it's her undergraduate or her, her postgraduate, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, so we looked at that a little bit um, as a sort of gentlewomanly way to reflect on ourselves, because it, it's true, we do have this kind of difficult relationship <laughs> with celebrating ourselves um, in the present time, but it felt really important to reflect on what we'd done and also to, to mark the fact that the magazine has changed even though it stayed mm -hmm. the same. So um, it's some of it's just hysterical meta information, mm -hmm. but it was an opportunity to pull some of the kind of highlights out and see visually yeah. some of the assets inside. Yeah, and, and, and it, it is an index. If there is, um, there's an index of every single woman that's been interviewed, which, oh is, which is one thing which must have been. Yes. I pity the poor person had to work on that. That was that, me. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, and my intern. Um, no, we all fell out over that, obviously, because uh -huh. it's one of those things that magazine makers know is the thing that everybody's screaming yeah. about having yeah. an uh, inaccuracy once you get to the printers, and then just all these kind of other little details like percentages and. Yeah. Sort of marginalia. I wanted a yes. big Venn diagram, but they wouldn't let me have it. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and uh, again, as typical of, of the character of the, of, of the gentleman, uh, another magazine might have sort of majored on the fact that sales increases or the, the I don't know, increases in all sorts of senses. There are tacit but, references, but, but if, you're, if your yeah. um, spine gets thicker, it yes, no, exactly. That. No, that's the one I was going to pick up on. <laughs> I love the fact that the... That, I mean, that's a ridiculous metric, but it's a fascinating one because it does. If, if you're into magazines and 
people collect your magazine and, and, and they're all side they by side. There's so much more shelf space for stuff to take, take, take Yeah, absolutely. But for going from 10 mil to 17 mil is, is an achievement Hefty. in its own right. Yeah, and you know, if you stick to what you said you were going to do mm-hmm. in that you were going to have 25 to 35% advertising only, not all magazines stick to that, obviously. There's many of them that are at the 60 and more yeah. mark. It means that you know, you're getting extra editorial bang for your buck, but that kind of third of advertising has has grown and we're really lucky it has otherwise mm-hmm. we wouldn't still exist mm-hmm. yeah so well, that's a fundamental i mean in that sense it's a uh that part is a very traditional business model yeah. isn't it? i mean you, you you're very advertising reliant you're we very are. lucky to be in that situation yeah we've got a brilliant advertising director god all hail lizzie sims and she does a really good job it's not easy at all mm-hmm. at the moment so it feels like a lot to celebrate not just the sort of 10 years but the commercial health you know you, mm-hmm. One wants to be um, modest because not everybody's having a great time, but you know what, we're lucky us. Well, indeed, we'll we'll come to not everybody having a good time, but let's focus still on you having a good time. I mean, it's it's not as simple as the secret of success is X, but I mean, there must be several things to which you can... uh, (sighs) We're told it's because it's very consistent um, and that we've uh, built up a very genuine and good relationship with the reader, um, I actually was having a dinner with, um, or rather I was sitting at a dinner with Ilsa Crawford, who's mm-hmm. the founder, editor of El Deco, isn't she? Yeah. Amongst many, many mm-hmm. other things. And um, she was giving me some <laughs> advice because I was saying, of course, once you get to 10 years, what next sort mm-hmm. of thing. And she's like, do not make the mistake of doing a redesign. She's like, you know, do not mm-hmm. uh, suddenly change because people rely on you to stick to the same principles that you always had and the mm-hmm. idea of... Um, wavering from those is a mistake and you've got to be careful you know the 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 secret of success is to make sure you let the change into your editorial team and reflect the things around you rather Mm -hmm. than um, create some kind of phony change in order to kind of give yourself false confidence which has really stayed with me she said I think that on Thursday night and I've been thinking about it ever since well but but it's interesting I mean because to me, one of the one of the big successes and one of the reasons for the success is that the team has been the same largely. Yeah, I mean yourself and Veronica. Yes, we've got really good staff retention. It's pr- mm-hmm. practically the same team that started it. Um, yeah, so there's a, a, a. I remember when I first started working with uh, Jop and Gert <clears throat> on the first issue of the Gentlewoman. We had to do a lot of talking to understand what we didn't do. You know, because that they worked all that out. The things mm-hmm. that in in terms of the house, things that they thought were appalling or or insincere about publishing etc took a long time for me to learn all those sorts of things whereas now our team yeah that hasn't changed so it means that we're fleet of foot and you know we lots of things don't you know we don't have to do a lot of explaining to each other about what we hate um because it's so obvious (laughs) um and and, and that's genuinely the secret Mm -hmm. i think it's just really strong opinions uh and it's also but it's also fabulously flexible within that because part i mean uh, Ilsa Crawford's recommending you don't redesign, but in a sense, there's well, an element of redesign every issue as well. But you're I mean, absolutely right. There's, so there's the same ethos and the same essential kind of central uh, aesthetic mm-hmm. present, but it shifts every time, doesn't true, it? True, true. And when you're talking to people about the magazine, you can tell who maybe saw the first issue and mm-hmm. and you know and don't can't see that typographically, um, fashion wise, uh, tone to some extent have have developed along the way, but that's not really a conscious thing. Um, I think probably you're a better judge of that than I am. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I know from um, talking to Veronica, hearing hearing Veronica talk about what she does, you know, she's very conscious mm. of that, very always uh, shifting, moving, and, and, you know, ideas that come up for one issue disappear, but then resurface and several issues later. And... Yeah, a typical conversation would be, but is it too early for that to come back? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When we started, sort of first few issues of the magazine, you'll remember it was really monolithic. There was kind of one big interview or another <laughs> big interview, and there wasn't very much kind of bite-sized yeah. content in between. So that's always been the question. And obviously, there's a lot of single-page advertising in the front section, so that's the kind of headache that all gets um, yeah. com- uh, booked very late. So you have to be pretty flexible there. So I think probably if you were making an observation about the magazine generally, you would say that the front section has become much, much more evolved over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. The big one for us, of course, has been uh, the Margaret Atwood mm-hmm. profile, which I 
fault, I don't mind telling uh -huh. you for. <laughs> uh -huh. um, there was a point at which it nearly got withdrawn and I've never got quite that uh, heavy, let's say. Uh -huh. um, it just felt like the real encapsulation of what we've been doing. And it's, it's rare actually that we try and parachute into a press junket where we're going to be part of a kind of moment in time. Often we're trying to do the opposite yeah, and get indeed. the in-between yeah, times. Yeah. But it felt that it was kind of now or never with that book, yeah. The Testaments. Yeah. So that's been a great journey for all of us because we were all reporting on that. I went into the locked room and, and read the book before uh -huh. it was okay. out. Um, I had my watch and my phone taken off me and it all felt very, yeah, real. Uh, and then from that to kind of going and observing her write, reading poetry at the Ledbury Poetry um, Festival. And I wasn't even writing the piece. So, uh, you know, everybody had a chance to kind of participate in that one. It's very good. And I, I think um, uh, Sophie Elmer has done a great job. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I know those are big ones, but you know, you get very, uh, I love Richard's, um, Richard O'Mani, our senior editor's oral history of yeah. the Delia uh, Smith effect. So if you can't get Delia, you want the whole culture around Delia, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I was going to ask about this, because that, that was a highlight to, uh, for me, just be, part, I mean, I assumed that, that you wanted to do Delia and you couldn't get Delia, but having gone through that, Oh, we came to it through uh, um, oral history. We always enjoy yeah. having oral history. It felt felt important, and Richard does them really well. And we came to that one because we know we can't get to Delia. Yeah. It wasn't really like we were trying to get okay. her for the cover. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult one. I mean, she would have to be a cover, but mm -hmm. it wasn't maybe right for this cover. Uh, there's a couple of things aligning here. One is celebrating your success, but the, um, we've already heard in, in, uh, earlier in the podcast from um, one of the ex-editors of Marie Claire about their news that they're... Uh, ceasing their print edition, and um, I want to ask you about that in the context of you know the your upwards trajectory versus there's a more mainstream traditional women's press experiencing a very kind of um, tough downward trajectory. Yeah, I'm really um, sad to sad to hear it. Um, it's an important magazine in terms of the kind of landscape of. Uh, British women's magazines because it set out in the late 80s to kind of create a more politicised uh, form and you know many of the best people in our industry uh, have come through that magazine you know Glenda Bailey's obviously the mm -hmm. editor of um, Harper's Bazaar now but that, that agenda to have serious content mixed in with um, uh, shopping pages etc and you know they did listicles and the, a lot of the things that we now see I suppose have been taken into um, lifestyle supplements in uh, newspapers actually is where yeah. a lot of their content mm -hmm. ended up most kind of uh, robbed or, or appropriated. Do you have a sense of what they might have done to avoid this, this fact? I, I haven't been through that publication uh, personally recently, uh, which perhaps is one, <laughs> one factor. Um, so I can't tell you, you know, what I think, you know, literally is is the problem but i think for a lot of women's lifestyle publications the front section hasn't been rethought mm -hmm. and that there's a kind of idea that you know a monthly magazine would be telling you news and tell giving you a social calendar where people don't look to a print magazine for those things obviously they mm -hmm. look online so um sometimes when they have been revised they start to kind of take on a tone that sounds a little bit like ecom as if the thing that replaced them is now the, the the type of media that should be in the magazine. I think that if you look through a lot of women's yeah. magazines, that's what you find is just like a lot of shouty pages that sort of sound like what's on the internet. Um, so I, I don't know whether that's the case for that magazine, but digital just put the fear in a lot of publications and they all look the same and they often look a lot like what's on the internet and they're not very special, so why would you pay however many pounds for that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly tough times for a, a, a lot of the mainstream publications and uh, I'm sure some will um, some will pull through, but it's, it's looking very tough at the moment. Yeah, I think it's the people that have got a start-up mentality. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's probably been to our advantage that it's been so lean and mm -hmm. entrepreneurial and, and simple, our working practices, because then, of course, we can turn on a sixpence or yeah, and not have yeah. a grid and, and respond to material yeah. coming in and be very flexible at the point of producing the magazine in the last month. If we're a much bigger organisation and we had, you know, 
uh, syndicated versions in other countries and things like that, that just wouldn't be possible. So I think that's the difference. We're just a completely different animal. And, you know, had I gone into this thinking that, like other editors, I'd be staying in the Shangri-La in Paris and kind of getting uh, sort of ferried around in a sedan chair, those last <laughs> days of Rome, it must be horrible for those people to yeah. see that being scaled back and their photo budgets, you know. Yeah. I, of course, I worked for a fashion photographer in the days when, you know, W were commissioning shoots at 70 grand for expenses and things like that. That just doesn't happen anymore. So I think being fascinated with your own demise as a publication is the sort of death knell, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you've always been the scrappy outsider, um, it, it gives you something not only to kind of aim for, but like a kind of um, muscular practice. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. I mean, in a sense, the only way is up. Yeah. And so looking forward, I mean, you know, taking Ilsa Crawford's advice, no redesign, no big shift, no, no sudden change, but obviously there, there are plans of some sort. I I've mean, got something to think where of. Where do you go? Yeah. Well, in the short term, we're going, we're literally going in that the, the, there were questions about whether we would do a conference or we'd do a mm -hmm. book or an exhibition. Those are the kind of formulae yeah. that a lot of people do. And I just felt now wasn't really the time to reflect in that way and kind of talk mm -hmm. about our, you know, magnificent empire. It just didn't feel modern. Um, so we've decided to do a world tour instead, um, <laughs> where we're taking the Gentlewoman Club uh, out and further so we can meet more readers, because that is mm -hmm. genuinely feeding lifeblood into the editorial formula and just the kind of self-esteem of the mm -hmm. team, I think. We've got a team that's stuck around for a long time, you want to make sure that they feel like they're learning new things too. So we're off to Stockholm and we're going to Shanghai um, and we've got an event in the UK. Um, there may be something... We're thinking about Scotland or Italy, but I can't say more about those uh -huh, ones. Yeah. But um, that will all happen before Christmas. Uh -huh, so we've got loads of international ta travel. We're doing, you know, we're using our, um, uh, what we call our occasionalities, which are the um, formats of the Gentlewoman Club that we repeat, like Cards Nights. We've just yeah. done one with mm -hmm. Ferragamo, you may have seen. And we're off to do a life drawing class in China. Uh -huh. um, and we're going to do um, walking tours and dinners and mm -hmm. those sorts mm -hmm. of things, just to make sure that we meet people in different ways. But I felt that was a kind of more forward-looking, outward-looking yeah, um, way to think about the future, really. Thank you, Penny, for, for popping in, and um, good luck with your world tour. Talking of events, it's almost time for Mag Culture Live, uh, taking place this year, 7th of November, so about seven weeks away, and we've just um, announced a few extra speakers. So Jodie Kwan, who spoke in, in New York earlier this year, um, she's the photo director from uh, New York Magazine. Great. We'll be talking, and it should be interesting that um, they, they've just done a fantastic series of cover, covers with um, Tavi Gevinson. And oh, yeah. Really lovely work, and it's you know the, again I mean, if we're talking about magazines changing and shifting, you know she's she's going through the uh, developing a new relationship for with a new editor, and it's interesting to hear about that. Also joining us will be Bertie Brands, who listeners I hope will know from Mushbit, one, one half of the Mushbit team. She She's now um, uh, helping edit uh, Civilization and working with Richard Turley on that. So that's um, another exciting addition. Sounds good. So time for the back issue. So join us after the break and we'll do that. London Printers Park Communications are a key part of the independent publishing scene helping ambitious magazine makers make their dreams a reality in both the UK and the US. Park offer a wide range of services to make your magazine stand out in a shop like MagCulture. Check out the latest issue of The Plant to see what they can do. As well as supporting this podcast, Park are a regular part of our annual conference MagCulture Live, where their shelves of magazine samples always attract plenty of attention. Just like MagCulture, Park Communications love magazines and we're proud to have them as partners. Right, so Jeremy, what have we got this month? Uh, this month's back issue is 032C, which may confuse you because you might be thinking that it still exists. But of course it still exists, <laughs> but it exists in its current format. But I want to look back and just consider how, you know, we were, we were hearing earlier about 10 years of The Gentlewoman and uh, wow. 032C has been going a little bit longer. Uh, but newspaper. I've got the first issue here and it was so different to what it is now. And I think it's worth highlighting that change. It was, it's like a Pantone advert. It was literally, well, it, well. It's exactly what it was. So 32C is that colour. Oh, yeah. And they did some special editions. I couldn't find my one, but they did some special editions where that big red square on the cover was screen printed on. 
which was really tactile and really gorgeous compared to the newsprint that it otherwise is. But it was just this kind of free, um, well, very, I think it's four euros, but it, it was just distributed locally around Berlin and it was just this kind of anarchic run-through of some interesting artworks and interesting pe th things that your Koch, who, who founded it, was spotting at the time before anything happened, before he became the kind of uber cool publisher, editor that he is today in producing the glossy this is out. so good. Yeah, it's a great format, isn't it? It's a great format. It's so exciting. So cool to see it as an old newsprint thing. I just didn't expect it would be like that, and it's numbered. Limited. Wow. Yeah. Where did you get it? I can't remember how I got hold of it, but I was researching the original Mag Culture book, and it features in that. Mm. And, and so I was following it at the time. I, I've got five or six issues from that era. It then went, so 032C is a pan-concology say so it had a big red square on the front cover. It then went through a very austere sort of glossy period, which dropped the red, and then now it came back red with a vengeance. This is and the, with Mike Meary as art director, with all the weird fonts and, and takes that that involves. It's so cool. I used to read this when I used to work at It's Nice That and just think, this is a very different world from the one I'm in. And I just, <laughs> you know, is. you know when you read like Monocle and you're like, okay, <laughs> this isn't the world that I inhabit. Yeah, yeah. I feel the same in 032C. It's just like, uh, yeah, but, but if, any, if, if anyone just, but there are two very different worlds to each other as well. I mean, Monocle's one oh, over yeah. there and 032C's yeah, yeah, yeah. over there. And this is, yeah. Using language that you're not quite familiar with. It's but great. that's what ma magazines should be their own world. Yeah, that's, totally. That's the, the, um, so that yeah, that's that's how a magazine can change over what we talk about twenty years. That's very cool. Talking about changes, um, this is the fourteenth episode of this po of this podcast. Is and it? Changes are afoot to live. Yes. You're moving. I am. Yeah. You're leaving London and you're going to live in Amsterdam. I am. So I'm leaving next week. The bad news is that you won't be able to join us on the on the on the podcast going forward. Maybe not, not regularly. Anyway. Regularly, yeah. but as a maybe special guest every now yeah. and again. I hope so. Because I'm very special. I, absolutely. It would be an honour to have you back. It's been very fun. And, yeah, I didn't really know what it was going to be when we first started out, but now Likewise. we've kind of got it down. Shame I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure whatever you do with the coming episodes is going to be great. I mean, there's always enough to talk about, isn't there? Lots of magazines. There is. Yeah, there's not always people to talk about it with, though, so I might have to move to Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, fine. Um, <laughs> so that's the bad news. The good news is, though, when you're in Amsterdam... There is a fantastic magazine shop. Our friends at the Athenaeum will look after you. That's nice. A bit like an almost famous when she says you can go to the record store and find your friends if you're a bit lonely. I'll just go to the magazine shop yeah, and so you can hang out nerd and myself into, yeah, a, yeah, you, you, <laughs> into numbness. You, <laughs> you can flick through Monocle and you can flick through 032C and reassure, yeah. reassure yourself that, <laughs> that you are you and not one of them. I think I'll just be reading Viz in a pub probably, <laughs> like an Irish pub. Or a coffee bar. Luddite that I am. You'd be in a yeah. coffee bar, surely, with Viz. Yeah, probably. <laughs> anyway, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for Thank these you. 14 episodes. Thank you for listening too. And see you next time. Time, we'll be back, is. Uh, somehow we'll be back soon.